I think this is the uh, most interesting theatre I've presented in uh, yet this week. We've had some pretty good sessions. I think this is number five out of uh, seven for me, though. So um, having a great time. Uh, this is advanced VPC design and new capabilities for Amazon VPC. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to cover. Um, the original idea of this session was to cover what new services have come out, but more talk about the architectures and how they change. Now, as we kind of move along and release more and more services, it's been harder and harder to pack everything into one uh, slide deck. And you'll see, um, I'll start with some stuff from last year, and even presenting just on that, we've just got so much stuff to cover. So that said, um, I'm Matt Lewis. I'm one of the uh, principal developer advocates for EC2. I've been at Amazon uh, about six years now, and I've seen some, some great things, and uh, you know, it's just awesome being here to present to you folks today. So thanks for coming along. So we're going to start with some statistics from last year. Was anyone in the session last year that I did on advanced VPC design? OK, a couple of hands. Well, last year the CSAT saw was 4.92. Now, I did actually say in that session, if you've seen the recording on YouTube as well, um, I said if I got close to a 5, I'd try and put more animations in the session this year. Now, we had about 642 attendees last year. I'm not sure how many there are this year, but um, we'll see. Maybe next year's session, I'll let you know the numbers. We also had 33,000 YouTube views for this session last year, which that just blows my mind. Um, I'm a traditional networking uh, guy. I used to be a network engineer. Uh, moved into AWS, like I said, about six years ago and kind of just took on this cloud thing. And the interest in cloud has been crazy. But what really surprised me was the interest in networking as well. And when I think about it, it really comes from uh, networking is the foundation of everything. It's how you build things on AWS. You start with an Amazon VPC and build up from there. Networking is really what underpins everything that we do in AWS. All of the services rely on networking. And as an old school networking uh, person like myself, it kind of makes me a little bit proud and a little bit happy. Now, from a statistics perspective, um, we had 396 animations last year. I got a 4.92. I sat down last night and counted the animations. It took me about 20 minutes. And this year's number is actually 1,483, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> uh, you'll see uh, where I kind of threw some of the animations in some of the stuff this year. But um, that said, it's kind of an inside joke from last year. But now you folks are all in on it this year, too. And we'll see how we go next year as well. Now, just a bit of a disclaimer. This is my disclaimer slide. Um, this kid kind of looks how, how I was looking last night, counting animations with the calculators and everything, too. Um, this is uh, the disclaimer where this is a 300-level session. So 300 is kind of that middle ground where we start with some foundational stuff, but we also talk about some pretty deep stuff as well. Now, some of us are novices in the room. Some of us are experts. Um, what I do ask is just a little bit of patience while we kind of build through the story. And I've tried to weave a story through this session and um, so it's not just straight diving into really deep stuff and not just staying on the uh, super high-level stuff. And photos are allowed, um, but the session will be on YouTube. It will be on uh, online as well, available to download as, I think, a PDF. Feel free to take some photos. I threw in a couple of these icons just where there was a built-out architecture that I think might be nice to take away. But don't get too carried away with the photos because you'll miss the story as well. Okay, so let's take a step back in time to November 2018, exactly one year ago, almost. So we have an Amazon VPC, and we're using EC2 and Amazon um, services, and we've got our AWS region. Within the region, we have a VPC, and a VPC is a region-level construct, so it spans the whole region. We tie a CEDAR address range, in this case a 10.1. We can expand our ranges. We can use IPv6. This is November last year, remember. We've got our multiple availability zones. We've got our subnets, some public, some private. And then we have some instances running inside our, our subnets. Now, we've also got the internet, as it's always kind of been out there. And we've also got these services like S3, DynamoDB, IoT, public services that sit outside of the VPC. Now, what you'll find as we kind of go through this story, there's a lot of these services and things that are public, 
but we've done a lot of work to bring those into the VPC in a private manner. From feedback we've heard from customers, customers have always said, look, we love VPC, it's great, I can control that domain, it's RFC 1918 addressing, but then I need to talk to S3 publicly or other services publicly. So you'll find as we go along here, we'll talk about bringing those services privately into the VPC. So let's build out a common VPC architecture from 12 months ago. So we have some route tables, and we have what's called the local route here, the 10.1 slash 16, because that's our CEDAR address range. That's gonna allow everything inside that VPC to talk to each other. We've got our internet gateway. Our public subnet also has a default route to the internet gateway with an elastic IP assigned to it, so an Amazon-owned uh, IP that's assigned to you as in, in the form of an elastic IP. And our public subnet and our instances in our public subnet can talk to public services, can talk to the internet, and everything's good. Then we have our private subnet, which we might be using a NAT instance for, so it can talk to the public realm, but the public realm can't talk back to it. Now hopefully last year you are also using NAT Gateway. NAT Gateway is a service that we built that allows you to do basically port address translation as a service inside your VPC. And you'll notice we're, we're building out the route table here as we go along. Then we have VPC endpoints, gateway endpoints for S3 in this case, where we can reach Amazon S3, and if we had another gateway endpoint, we could reach DynamoDB as well. Then we have our on-premises via a VGW, some Direct Connect, some VPN, just like it has been there for quite some time. We've also got Direct Connect Gateway, and we build out some further routes via the VGW. We also had VPC peering, and we released intra-region, or inter-region along with intra-region. So we can communicate with other VPCs and we build out our route table further along still. Then last year, we released Transit Gateway. And Transit Gateway was a big one for us because when we built VPC, we sat down and thought about it and said, well, VPC's great, it's a virtual private cloud and everyone can have one. Well, what it turned out to be, uh, many customers decided to have more than one. And in fact, I talked to a customer a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they told me they've got 1,100 VPCs. So when we're talking about 1,100 VPCs in one organization, how do we communicate between those VPCs? And that's really where Transit Gateway comes into play. So last year, we launched Transit Gateway. It gives you access to talk to other VPCs, and we can also talk to our on-premises last year via a VPN as well. So Transit Gateway can also do VPN termination. We build out our routes on the left-hand side here as well. We also have Private Link, and there's two kinds of flavors of Private Link here. One is Private Link-enabled services. So services that use Private Link to drop endpoints into a VPC so that they can be privately reached. But then we decided, well, that's actually a pretty cool idea. Let's release that to the public so you folks can build services and you can actually have a private link VPC or what we call a service provider VPC that can drop endpoints into a VPC. Really good for our partners, in fact. We also have flow logs and you can send flow logs to Amazon S3 and CloudWatch. And then last year as well, we launched Global Accelerator, which is, it's like an Anycast service, but it's actually much more than that. So using our global backbone to get traffic back to uh, the closest region using a single Anycast IP address, or actually two addresses. Now as of November last year, or reInvent last year, this is what your architecture could be. So this is how, throughout the last 12 months, I've been talking to many customers, and um, these are the architectures or things that people use to build variations of this architecture when it comes to VPC. Okay. So, what's changed in the last 12 months? Well, we'll start with interface endpoints. And this is actually a pretty easy one for us. So, as we built private link and interface endpoints, and last year we had about 18 services, and basically the way we do it is we drop a set of elastic network interfaces into the VPC. They're reachable from things within the VPC without having to have a prefix list. So you'll notice here we've only got the local route in the routing table, because private link will actually, or EC2 interface endpoints, will actually take an elastic network interface from inside your VPC. So we had about 18 services that supported uh, interface VPC endpoints last year. Over the course of the year, we've, uh, and throughout up until now, we've actually got 41 services that are now supported with private links. So we've been pretty busy there. 
So it's actually been a lot of work for our service teams to work with every one of these services to say, hey, we've got this thing called private link. How about we build some functionality into your service so then our customers can drop your service privately into a VPC, which makes a lot of sense if you want to keep things privately. You can also add end interface endpoint policies, just like you could with uh, S3 gateway endpoints, for example, as well. And I can think that that list has probably grown. I counted last night, there was 41. I also spoke to one of the PMs for Private Link, and he said, uh, maybe hold off on the count because it's going to increase over the next couple of days as well. So I'll probably check that in a week's time, and it'll be even more services. And if you want to take a quick photo there, there's our, our icon. I haven't thrown that on every slide, just a couple that I think might be useful. Okay, let's move on to VPC endpoint services. So before, this is last year, you would build a VPC and then you could have what's called a service provider VPC. And so we've got a couple of instances in there that could be a SaaS, so our software um, as a service. It could be one of our partners or it could be you building a SaaS service. And then you can actually use private link to connect to a network load balancer and connect to your SaaS service. So you've got a set of instances that sit inside your customer VPC and they can talk privately to any service you'd like to build behind a network load balancer in another VPC. Now this is actually a great service for if you've got a 10.1 VPC and let's just say you've built five of those and reuse that 10.1 VPC range. Now, if you use peering, you can't actually peer um, overlapping IPs uh, together via peering, via overlapping CEDA address ranges for the VPCs. With private link, you actually can. So it does definitely help there with your address management. Now, over the last 12 months, we've deployed tagging for endpoint services. Pretty straightforward. Very important for billing and that sort of thing. But we've also made private link available over peering. So you would have noticed if you first used private link, it drops an interface endpoint into the VPC, but it wasn't reachable over peering. Now, customers asked for that because they wanted to have a centralized VPC that had private link services in that VPC, and then they would peer out from there and allow that access from other VPCs. So we now have that as well. So we've basically built the functionality where a peering connection allows you to connect through to a private link endpoint. And that's also applicable for interface endpoints as well. All right, we'll move along here. And I've got a whole bunch of other things to, to cover. So we're going to move a little bit quickly here for a minute, and then we'll slow down on some of the other newer stuff. So Global Accelerator, basically a service where we can have an Anycast-like entity at, at our edge location. So in this case, we're using a three address. That address is advertised out from our, our backbone, from our edge locations. And users can come in and hit that single IP, or there's two IPs and then come through to services that are in multiple regions. So we had some incremental updates for Global Accelerator. Uh, we now support additional regions for Global Accelerator and application endpoints. We also enabled source IP preservation. That was one, one of the complaints we had from customers that when they'd have something come in via Global Accelerator, they didn't see that original source. So we've enabled that, but further, we now support EC2 instance endpoints for Global Accelerator as well. Now, you still need to have an internet gateway, but it gives Global Accelerator the ability to reach into your VPC and allow that traffic through without having to have public access. All righty. Let's keep moving here. And I'm moving at a bit of a fast pace because I, I feel like these services have been around and you've probably used most of them, so it would be a revision, but we're going through the incremental updates and we'll get to some of the newer stuff in just a moment. So we've got AWS Site-to-Site -Site VPN. A quick refresher course on a Site-to-Site -Site VPN. We've changed the name a couple of times, but we have this thing called a virtual gateway or a virtual private gateway that's attached to a VPC. We have our on-premises. And AWS, we define the on-premises router as a customer gateway or a CGW. Other folks might call it a CPE or maybe just an edge router. And then over the public internet, we allow you to connect via IPsec to the VGW from your CGW. So we build an IPsec tunnel over the internet. Now, over the last 12 months, we've had a couple of incremental updates here. So we now support certificate authentication. So previously, you'd configure an IPsec tunnel or a VPN connection in the AWS region. You'd download a configuration and you'd get a pre-shared key. You'd then go and configure that pre-shared key on your CGW or your edge router. Now, you can use AWS Certificate Manager. You can create a certificate, 
configure the CGW within uh, AWS. So when you configure a CGW in, this, in these terms, it's creating a CGW in the AWS console and saying, I'd like to connect to this CGW, or in this case, allow the CGW to connect to me. And then you use that certificate on the CGW for access into the VGW. Now, the great part about this piece is you're, you don't need to tell AWS what the source IP of the, the CGW is actually going to be because it has a certificate and that's what's being used to authenticate for IPsec. Now, if we wanted to configure that here, really straightforward, this is just creating a customer gateway in the AWS console. I've actually pre-built out a certificate using Certificate Manager here, and you'll see it's available here. So we're gonna use a, a certificate ARN, and then we just create the customer gateway using that certificate. It's really straightforward. Now we did do a couple more incremental updates. Uh, Internet Key Exchange version two, so Ike V2. Uh, Ike V1's been deprecated for, for a little while now, so that was uh, a good one that we did. And then also configurability of security algorithms. Um, when I talk to some of our service teams, and particularly the engineering folks that take care of our VPN um, connectivity here, uh, I'd ask them what, what their biggest complaint is, and they would say, customers always have trouble configuring IPsec back to AWS. It, there's just so many things that you know, they need to figure out. Now, with giving customers the ability to do configuration of all of these aspects of their IPsec, it's for someone who knows how to configure IPsec but says, you know what, I need, a, need to configure a phase one or a phase two algorithm or you know, giving you customization as far as the IPsec connection goes. And that definitely helps when customers are trying to connect back to the VPC. Now we did release Transit Gateway and there are a lot of customers using site-to-site -site VPN to a VGW. So a couple of our folks got together, and there's a quick link here, and this is actually a tool to migrate or help you migrate from a VGW IPsec uh, connection to a Transit Gateway IPsec connection. All right, let's move on to client VPN. And I know if I go a little bit too quick and you don't get the link in the, uh, in the slide, don't worry, the links will be available in, in the presentation, and I'll make sure I put them up on, on a comment in the uh, recording as well. Let's talk about client VPN. This was released last year, and it was for customers that want to have a client on a laptop to connect back to AWS for management or something similar, we built this service called the Client VPN Service. So in this case, we've got a user with an open VPN client. We've got a TLS-based tunnel over the internet, so different to the IPsec tunnel that we use with the site-to-site -site VPN. Then we've got an attachment to an Amazon VPC from the Client VPN Service. And because it is an attachment, and we're using a private link-like construct, we can actually connect through that VPC to other things like an internet gateway, VPC peering, other services. So you can basically go through a VPC to your AWS deployment. Now we did also do a couple of updates here. So we now support CloudFormation, great. We should have at the beginning, but uh, I'm glad it's there now. Uh, we also support um, split tunneling. So if you wanted to send traffic over um, through AWS, normally with an IPsec tunnel, or a, in this case a TLS tunnel, all the traffic would go over that tunnel. In this case, you can actually send traffic that's destined to something somewhere else locally instead of through AWS. So traffic not destined for AWS can go via the split tunnel. Uh, we also support multi-factor authentication for Active Directory now too. Okay, now we get to the exciting stuff. And, um, I'm always excited about Transit Gateway stuff because it was one of those th products that I saw from original idea to you know, whiteboarding some things out and figuring out how we can build this thing to implementation and deployment last year. And then seeing the uptick on customers using Transit Gateway has just been absolutely amazing. So Transit Gateway, you can think of it like a centralized hub in AWS or a centralized logical routed entity. So it's an entity and I, I steer away from the term a router because that um, makes me think about single devices and redundancy. It's really a logical entity with a fleet of things that support it. So a whole bunch of systems that support a transit gateway. Now we can attach to VPCs from the transit gateway. And in fact, we can attach up to up to 5,000 VPCs. Now, previously with peering, the most, or the largest number of VPCs you could connect to was 125. 
with Transit Gateway and 5,000 VPCs, the customer I was speaking to that has 1,100 VPCs is actually okay to use a, a single Transit Gateway if they wanted to. Now, they actually have a, a large architecture that has multiple Transit Gateways, but we also built capability to do VPN from on-premises. And what we found was, when we built Transit Gateway, we thought that customers would stop building Transit VPCs. Now, a transit VPC is when you build a VPC and it's got some instances in that VPC, some router instances or some firewall instances, and then you use IPsec to connect traditionally back to a VGW. Now, what, that ha what happens then is traffic inside the VPC can follow the VGW over the IPsec tunnels, hit a routed instance, and then get forwarded on somewhere else. And you've effectively um, used the transit VPC to put a firewall in line or something similar. Now, when we built Transit Gateway, we thought, okay, well, now we can have this centralized point that's acting like a Transit VPC, and we don't need Transit uh, VPCs anymore. But in fact, Transit Gateway made the case for Transit VPCs stronger, because in this case, we've got a set of firewalls or something similar in a Transit VPC, but now Transit Gateway does ECMP for IPsec, or equal cost multipath. And what that means is when you have multiple IPsec tunnels from a transit gateway to multiple instances, if you advertise the same BGP prefixes with the same metrics, we'll actually load balance across those tunnels. So with a VGW and transit VPC, you would only ever have one leg active at one time. Now with transit gateway, you can actually have many, up to 50 legs active at one time. And I've personally tested 50 gig of IPsec traffic through a transit gateway to 40 instances doing IPsec in a transit VPC. So we're still seeing these transit VPC architectures as well. So we'll see what happens next year with, with transit VPC. Now during the year, we did have VPN for transit gateway, but a lot of customers were asking, what about Direct Connect? So we built this new type of virtual interface called a transit virtual interface. Now to talk about a transit VIF, we're gonna take a bit of a detour here on Direct Connect, and we'll do this pretty quickly. But we've got an on-premises, and we've got an AWS region, we've got a VPC, we've got a CEDAR address range. The on-premises is connected to a service provider network in this case. And then we've got a Direct Connect location. At the Direct Connect location, we've got the AWS router, and we've also got the customer router. We then connect what's called a cross-connect between the AWS router and the customer router. So a cross-connect is effectively just a fiber that goes from one device to another device in a data center. So in this case, in the direct connect location. Now then, if we want to connect back into AWS, we use a private virtual interface to connect to a VPC via a VGW, or a public virtual interface to connect to the public realm. And what we'll actually do in the public realm is send you all of the BGP prefixes or routes for all of the AWS regions, for all of the, the public services. So you can actually reach to any public service in any region from a single public Direct Connect virtual interface. Now we can actually have up to 50 virtual interfaces on a single cross connect or single Direct Connect connection. And in this case, we've actually got two private VIFs and one public VIF. So you can have up to 50 VIFs and a mix of public or private. Now we realized that just having a single virtual interface or up to 50 virtual interfaces wasn't enough scale. So about two years ago, we released Direct Connect Gateway. And Direct Connect Gateway allows you to fan out with a single private VIF to up to 10 VPCs. So now we've got a one to 10 ratio of VIF to VPCs if it's a private VIF. Transit Gateway, sorry, uh, Direct Connect Gateway, lots of gateways here, uh, Direct Connect Gateway allows you to also connect to multiple regions. It's a global service. It's one of our few global services, in fact. So in this case, we're actually using the same private VIF in the same uh, Direct Connect location, and we're connecting back to multiple regions in multiple geographic areas. So in this case, we could have a private VIF um, in maybe the uh, Vegas SuperNAP 8 data center here in Vegas. Now, that connects to our Portland region, you could also build a private VIF to a Direct Connect Gateway in our Dublin region and connect privately all the way back to Dublin. So Direct Connect Gateway was fantastic for having these global connections from a single Direct Connect to many regions. Now quite recently, we didn't have this support before surprisingly, we released multi-account Direct Connect Gateway. So you can now have a Direct Connect Gateway that can attach to VPCs that are in different accounts, not just different regions. 
We also release some uh, new partner connection speeds. So if you're using what's called a hosted connection, which is a sub one gig, um, you would use a partner. And the partner basically deploys devices at the co-location facility and offers a slice of the direct connect to you to use uh, like a 50 meg or 100 meg or a 200 meg. So you don't have to buy a one gig or a 10 gig. Now what we realized was customers wanted to have higher speeds for hosted connections, but they didn't want to have to manage the networking behind it. So manage a cross-connect, manage the BGP. They just wanted a partner to be able to do that. So we released the new partner connection speed. So our partners can now offer one gig, two gig, five gig, and 10 gig on hosted connections. So they offer that as a service to you. Okay, we're still detouring here, but let's talk about the transit VIF with DX Gateway. So we've got our transit gateway and it's connected to multiple VPCs, up to 5,000 in a region. Now, the transit gateway is a regional level construct, so it sits within a single region, but it can connect up to 5,000 VPCs. Then we have a direct connect gateway, which can attach to the transit gateway, and then we can build a transit VIF from your on-premises through the direct connect into the direct connect gateway and into the transit gateway. So now we have direct connect capability for transit gateway as well. Now, the biggest limitation with the transit VIF is for a direct connect, you can have 50 VIFs. However, the scale that the transit VIF operates at, we can only offer you one transit VIF per direct connect. So think of it like your 51st VIF. So 50 VIFs, public or private, and then the 51st could be a transit VIF. So you could use a single transit VIF there to connect to a transit gateway. Now, you get a little bit more scale than that if 5,000 wasn't enough, 5,000 VPCs. You can also connect to up to three transit gateways per direct connect gateway. And these transit gateways, because direct connect gateway is a global service, these transit gateways can actually be in multiple regions. So you could have three regions with three transit gateways and have the same transit VIF connected to those. All righty. So the Amazon VPC route limit, I just want to take a second to talk about this. The default number of routes you can have within a VPC, within a route table, is 50. And the hard limit for the longest time was 100 routes. So within a VPC, you could only configure 100 static routes for a route table. Now this year, it's been a long time because I've had this request for about five or six years, we can now go to 1,000 routes within your route table within an Amazon VPC. It's still not 10,000 like the Transit Gateway, but it's pretty good. It gives you a lot more scale than 100. And it is available on request as well. So you'd have to put in a, a trouble ticket to, to request to go to 1,000 routes. It's not something that just happens automatically. All righty, we're getting to the new stuff now. Ingress routing. Ingress routing as it stands right now is about 12 hours old, I think. So. <laughs> Ingress routing is basically um, the ability to decide what happens to packets as it comes into the as packets come into the VPC. So in this case, we've got a VPC. We've got two instances A and B. Those instances, just like before, have our route tables. So we've got a public route table, and actually we've got two public route tables here, and we're sending traffic via different things. And I've, I've removed a lot of the other components in this diagram just to make it simple. But as traffic comes in via an internet gateway. What will happen is, as we have a destination of either VPC, oh, sorry, uh, instance A or instance B, the internet gateway just forwards on that packet. And it actually uses this local route here. So the local route allows everything in the VPC to talk to each other. And the internet gateway will just say, OK, well, I've got a destination of 10.1.0.5, which could be instance A. Send the packet to that instance. So as of yesterday, we now have the ability, if you have something like a firewall or something similar, let's say instance A is a firewall. We have stuff coming in via the internet. We might have an IGW or a um, VGW. We can now have what's called a gateway route table associated with the internet gateway in this case. So anything that's destined to B will send that traffic to A, which is our firewall first. The firewall then has smarts to send traffic on to instance B, and we've now got basically connectivity from the outside world, and we're implementing a policy in the form of a route table to send traffic to an instance that is a firewall in this case before going on to the original destination. 
Now we have a whole bunch of partners that have actually released integrations with ingress routing. I think there was about, there's more than 10 partners that we'd integrated with. So uh, folks like Palo Alto Networks, firewalls and checkpoints, et cetera. Like all of, all of those products that you know and love and, and love using as instance-based devices, you can now use instance um, ingress routing with. Now we also have the ability to have gateway route tables on VGWs as well. So in this case, traffic that comes in through a, a VGW or a virtual private gateway could get forwarded onto our firewall instance in this case as well. And so a lot of folks internally were thinking about this as a kind of like a form of bump in the wire, if you will. So we were saying, okay, we'd like to have this firewall in line before we get somewhere else. Okay, let's go back to transit gateway. We took a bit of a detour there on some VPC stuff and some direct connect. So for Transit Gateway, this is about 12 hours old as well. Accelerated site-to-site -site VPN for Transit Gateway. So with Transit Gateway, we support VPN connectivity. And Transit Gateway was really designed to have large-scale VPC connectivity, up to 5,000 VPCs, with connectivity from your on-premises via IPsec. Now we also have Direct Connect Transit VIFs as well. But in this case, you'd be traversing the public internet for that VPN connection. So we basically, on a transit um, gateway, we will have our VPN endpoints that are publicly reachable and we'll use public elastic IPs or Amazon IPs that are reachable from the internet that you would build a tunnel to. So you're using the internet as your backhaul to the transit gateway. Now we have this amazing service called Global Accelerator which uses our internet backbone, or sorry, uses our AWS backbone and basically we have these edge locations that are deployed all across the world. And in this case, what we're actually doing is we're advertising those IPs. Think of it like an Anycast address for your IPsec. We're advertising those from our edge locations. And then your branches can build a VPN connection to those addresses. Then from the edge location, you're actually gonna be traversing or using the AWS network. So now we're extending the network further out to you so your branch can reach to that edge location and then use our optimized backbone to come back into the transit gateway as opposed to using the internet all the way. Now, some of the benefits um, could be lower latency, less jitter, a more consistent connection because we, AWS, are managing more of the network there. there. You're using the edge location and we have network from the region out to the edge location. So it's really ideal for things like branch connectivity and um, you can think of it like a Global Accelerator, which is a service we talked about before, so Anycast IPs, uh, using Global Accelerator and Transit Gateway together as one service called Accelerated Site-to-Site -Site VPN. Okay, Network Manager. We've been talking about Transit Gateway and customers that have thousands of VPCs. I think the largest customer I've seen is about 2,000 VPCs, so um, just that 1,100 one was, was front of mind because it happened a couple of weeks ago. But things, uh, when you have many transit gateways and many connections, um, customers have been asking us for some way to manage those. So we made Transit Gateway Network Manager. So Network Manager is really a mechanism that we've launched this two days ago or one day ago uh, as of now as well. It's a mechanism for managing and monitoring your global network. So um, it's giving you the visibility that you've been looking for in your global network, your transit gateways, your VPN connections, your geographies and where you've got sites deployed, et cetera. But it's, all, it's just giving you that visibility for all of those pieces and bringing it all together in one dashboard. And we've also built a whole bunch of integrations with SD-WAN providers. So some of our SD-WAN pro providers have built connectivity and capability that works with Network Manager to have a seamless solution. So we've got uh, a screen here of Network Manager, um, and you can see this as you jump into the console. We can see uh, we've got our global network inventory, so we've got some transit gateways here. We've got 16 sites and 50 devices connected uh, to our transit gateways. You can see we've got our Transit Gateway VPN status. We've got some uh, a network event summary. And the tabs that you can see across the top there, we've got things like uh, ge geography and topography. And in fact, I think I've got a slide here for what the uh, topography, uh, topology sorry, looks like. And so you can see a breakdown of where your sites and your VPN connections and your Transit Gateways sit and what the relationship is between those. So Network Manager really gives you some additional visibility across your global network that you've deployed with AWS. 
and some of our SD-WAN partners, so um, Cisco, Silverpeak, Aruba, and Aviatrix. Um, I was personally working with the, these four partners over the last few months to build, build integrations into Network Manager. So someone like Aruba in their, um, their Connect platform or their SD-WAN platform now have capability to um, reach into Network Manager and, and work side by side with Network Manager. Okay, we've got a couple of little bonus things here for you as well. So I had, to, I had to make a call on this one, and we've got two new services here, Transit Gateway Multicast and Interregion Peering. Now I had to make a call on whether I put Multicast in here or Interregion Peering, and I based it off some customers and what they were interested in, and, and they wanted to hear about uh, Interregion Peering. But we have both Multicast capability in Transit Gateway now and Interregion Peering as well as of yesterday. And we've just got a link there that takes you to a, a bit of a rundown on, on how they work. So let's talk about cross-region transit gateway uh, peering. So transit gateway is a regional level construct. It's built on our hyperplane platform that sits within the region itself. So it's not something that spans multiple regions. So when you've got a region, you've got many VPCs connected to a transit gateway. Uh, if you wanted to connect to another region, up until yesterday, you'd use something like cross-region peering on a VPC by VPC basis. But now in this case, you can build a static peering connection between transit gateways. So it's a new attachment type. It's also using the infrastructure and capability that we built into cross-region peering, which is also encrypted. And we also don't push this traffic out onto the public backbone. All this traffic stays on the AWS backbone. Now, one of the key things that I've been asked about uh, cross-region uh, transit gateway peering is, can I peer transit gateways within the same region? The answer is no, not right now. Um, so this is really designed to have one region with a transit gateway connected to another transit gateway in another region. Now, generally speaking, within a region, if you've got a transit gateway, you'll probably use something like route tables on the transit gateway to segment your traffic and segment up your, your traffic flows between VPCs and that sort of thing. So multi-region transit gateway peering is where it actually gets quite interesting where you've got many regions, and we'd suggest building a full mesh of transit gateways so every transit gateway that you've deployed in every region can talk to every other transit gateway. And now you've effectively built a global network of transit gateways which can connect all of your VPCs in every region through the transit gateway, over peering to another transit gateway in another region to another VPC in that other region. Now one point here before we move on, when you configure a transit gateway, we ask that you configure an ASN, an autonomous system um, number. We do ask that when you configure transit gateways, you use a new ASN for every transit gateway. Because at some point, right now we only have static peering of transit gateways, but at some point we might, we might want to do dynamic. And if we use dynamic, we'll probably use ASN. So right now it's a good idea when you create a transit gateway in one region, give it an ASN. In another region, give it a different ASN so they don't overlap. All right, now we move on to about, um, I think it was about July this year, we released traffic mirroring. And traffic mirroring was one of these things that, we've, that our customers have asked about for a long time. So I think I had a slide in a session I did in 2014, and it had a traffic mirroring slide on there because we were talking about we wanted to build traffic mirroring. Now, it's now 2019, and yes, we finally have traffic mirroring. So what is traffic mirroring? Well, basically, if you've got an instance here, and we're sending packets and receiving packets from that instance, we go over the Elastic Network Interface of the instance. So the Elastic Network Interface is basically the network adapter of the instance. It's a virtual thing, um, and that's what packets will traverse to go through to the instance. Now in this case, now with traffic mirroring, we can actually go in and create a traffic mirroring session for that instance, and then packets will get mirrored or duplicated and sent on to a monitoring instance. So if you have a monitoring instance which is running um, particular um, software, which we'll talk about, um, you're basically receiving these packets now, or copies of these packets, so you get visibility into the raw packets that are going to your instance and going, coming out of your instance. So there's three components with traffic mirroring. We have targets, filters, and sessions. 
target's pretty straightforward. It's the destination for the mirrored traffic. A filter, because you might not want to have all the traffic sent to the um, mirrored or the destination instance, and sessions which tie uh, filters and targets together. Now, I've got a couple of slides on, on how these work. So targets, we can actually use elastic network interfaces and load balancers, so ne the network load balancer. So we can send traffic to the elastic network interface of another instance or a network load balancer if we wanted to do some load balancing. With filters, you can apply a filter on the traffic mirroring session and basically what that means is you can discard packets that you might not want to look at. So in this case, we've got a filter for inbound packets only. With filters, we have, it basically we look at a five tuple here. So um, it's ingress um, or egress or both, TCP, UDP, source IP, um, the port, destination IP and the port, and also the ability to truncate. If you just want the first 64 bytes of a packet, you could put in 64 here and only receive that instead of receiving the full 1500 byte or larger packet. So what we would basically do is select as we build a filter, we want ingress, TCP, from anything, it might be a web instance, uh, source port any to my server, port 80, and then maybe we want the full packet in this case. Now sessions basically describe the behavior or the, the um, target and the filter together. So it's the relationship of the two. Now we can actually have up to three sessions per instance. So you could basically say, I would like to filter traffic for inbound and send that to one instance. I'd like to filter uh, another application and send it to another instance. Now, we actually, um, so we tie together the source, the target, and the filter, and that's what we call a session. But then we can also have up to three sessions per instance. And what we'll basically do is we'll give each of the sessions a um, ID, and the lowest ID gets the priority. So we don't actually mirror packets more than once will say, okay, this ID matches this packet and it's got a lower ID than the others, let's send that packet to a particular destination and that packet has now been mirrored. So we don't duplicate packets more than once. Okay, so performance of an EC2 instance and traffic mirroring, it's an important topic to touch on because as we're sending packets in and out of an instance, in this case, we'll just use an example here, so one gig inbound and one gig outbound. We're also mirroring all of that traffic in this case, so we're, we're not truncating, we're not filtering, we're sending all of the traffic to our monitoring instance. So we've got basically two gig of traffic being mirrored, so the one gig inbound and the one gig outbound. The EC2 instance that's being mirrored actually needs to be able to support four gig right now. So you need to do your instance right sizing to support four gigabits per second. So you need to use an instance size that's that large that can support that because traffic mirroring will use up some of the bandwidth that that instance has available to it. The monitoring instance in this case is actually only needs to be able to support two gigabits per second. So your instance traffic and your mirrored traffic both count towards the overall instance's performance. So right sizing, as always, is, is extremely important, especially when you're thinking about things like traffic mirroring. Now, one last point here, um, production traffic actually does have a higher priority than traffic mirrored traffic. So if you are oversubscribing that instance, we will drop mirrored traffic before we drop production traffic, if there's congestion. All right, some points on scale, because when we talk about performance and you're thinking, I'm mirroring two gig worth of mirrored traffic to an instance. That instance can handle that two gig, but what if I have two or three or four instances all communicating or larger instance sizes going to other smaller instance sizes? In this case, we've got a couple of instances that are communicating. We enable traffic mirroring, and we're using an NLB as a destination. So now that network load balancer is actually going to be sending that traffic across multiple monitoring instances. So we've now got some scale, and these can in fact be in an auto-scaling group which allows traffic to be sent across all four of those instances. And in fact, the NLB now supports UDP because our mirrored traffic is in fact UDP. So under the hood from traffic mirroring, we're actually using VXLAN. So what we're doing is we're taking a packet, we're mirroring it on our Nitro system that sits inside the instance or sits as part of the instance, and 
as it gets mirrored, it gets encapsulated in a VXLAN header and then passed on to the traffic mirroring destination. So that means that if you're sending to a network load balancer, VXLAN is UDP-based. We needed to have UDP capability as well. So you can now do UDP for NLB as well as a side effect of this, which is pretty awesome. Some differences here between flow logs and traffic mirroring. So flow logs are really logs of uh, network traffic or logs of network flows, whereas traffic mirroring are the real packets with the ability to truncate if you wanted to. So flow logs, you can send traffic to S3 and Amazon CloudWatch logs. Whereas VPC traffic mirroring, you would send traffic to another Elastic Network Interface or a network load balancer. Now, with flow logs, you're capturing the five tuple for a specific capture window. With VPC traffic mirroring, you're actually capturing the real packets. And it was actually quite easy for um, a couple of folks and I who work for AWS to sit down over a weekend and build our own traffic analyzer based on real packets that were coming from traffic mirroring. So you're actually getting those real packets, and we could see into what those packets were actually doing. So that said, what do you actually do with the packets? Well, we have a whole bunch of APN partners that have built integrations into traffic mirroring. You could build your own analyzer if you wanted to. And we have uh, some open source IDS, IPS tools like Zeek and Suricata that you can use with traffic mirroring as well. And in fact, I've got a quick link here before we move on from traffic mirroring on using those open source tools for traffic mirroring, so Zeek and Suricata. So I have two use cases here for traffic mirroring before we move on to something else um, that I'm actually super excited about. I'm excited about all this stuff, but especially excited. Okay, so this is a use case that um, where uh, some of our internal folks were like, well, we wanna use traffic mirroring and we wanna do some cool stuff with it. And in this case, they were seeing good and bad traffic on instances and they decided to use guard duty and guard duty would actually fire an alert based on what the behaviors it would see with this good and bad traffic. Now, it would send a, um, an alert to CloudWatch events. CloudWatch events would then trigger a Lambda. Lambda would then match the alert, identify the instance ID that needs monitoring, spin up a monitoring instance, and enable traffic mirroring. So we've seen um, bad packets coming through to an instance, and now we've activated traffic mirroring. So we're receiving those packets on a monitoring instance now, and if we're running, say, an open source, um, uh, maybe Zeek or Suricata on this monitoring instance, we can take our logs and send those logs over to S3, and then maybe at a later stage, we could use Amazon Athena to inspect those logs. Now, as the bad traffic goes away, we could actually have Lambda fire another alert here that says, well, we're no longer seeing bad traffic go to this instance. Let's save our dollars and spin down traffic mirroring. If you guys want a photo of that one, I'll just go back there for a second. Alrighty, so we can actually spin down traffic mirroring as well. Now, another quick use case as well, well, we'll move on to the next one. In this case, we're actually mirroring traffic. And the rule here is we want to mirror traffic on all instances, but what if an instance gets spun up that we don't know about? Well, in this case, we're using the network load balancer because we're probably gonna expect some scale here. An instance gets spun up, and we're using AWS CloudTrail to trigger a Lambda when a new instance is created. So CloudTrail is gonna trigger a, an event. Lambda is then gonna look at the CloudTrail event and identify the ENI ID. We'll then create a, a mirror on this, uh, for this instance. And we'll then start sending packets to the NLB. Behind the NLB, we've also, we're also running Zeek and Suricata in this case. And we're compiling our, our logs and sending it on to S3. And then we're monitoring that from, uh, from Amazon Athena as well. So in this case, when someone's gone up and spun up a new instance, automatically CloudTrail has triggered Lambda, spun up traffic mirroring, started mirroring all packets um, that from the outside through to our network monitoring system. Okay. Just give you guys a second on this one as well. You can probably guess where the 1400 animations came from. <laughs> Alrighty. So there's a couple of considerations here. Mirrored traffic isn't subject to the outbound security group. So if someone says, oh, I think I'm having my traffic mirrored by my IT security folks, I'm gonna put a security group around my instance so they don't see my traffic. 
it doesn't count. So traffic mirroring isn't affected by an outbound security group on an instance. Flow logs also don't ca capture mirrored traffic either. And packets uh, will be mirrored only if they pass the inbound security group or ACL. So the packet actually needs to reach the instance for it to be mirrored. If you're blocking it at a NACL or a security group beforehand, we won't be able to mirror the traffic. Okay, so we're about 10 minutes right on the dot here. It's just enough time to talk about this next topic. So AWS Outposts, and um, you'll probably notice that last year I was a solution architect. This year I'm a developer advocate. I actually moved into the EC2 team this year, and I'm working on AWS Outposts. So I've been heads down on a whole bunch of Outpost stuff. Now, as a networking person, I'm working on the networking piece for Outposts. And I'm super excited about this one. Um, it's going to be pretty awesome. This was actually, uh, this, is, this is the real rack here. If you want to actually go and see the rack in person, you can head down to the exhibition center. We have a rack sitting there um, that you can hug uh, <laughs> if, if, if you're so inclined. All righty, let's talk about AWS Outposts. Uh, real quick, so for folks that aren't familiar with AWS Outposts, what we're basically doing is we're giving you, um, or we're taking AWS Compute and giving it to you on-premises. So it's a fully managed service that runs in your data center, and we have the ability then to use things like EC2, EKS, ECS, um, on the Outpost itself. So marketing slide here, but think of it about like a single pane of management. We'll talk about what that looks like from a networking perspective in just a second too. Okay, so AWS Outpost is a very large topic, but we're just gonna zoom in on the networking piece here. And it's actually fascinating. So we have an AWS region, and again, we have our VPC. So this is like our, our common kind of architecture that we're seeing here, VPCs with public subnets, private subnets, multiple availability zones. What we're doing now, though, is taking that VPC and we're extending it on-premises. So if, if we've got an AWS outpost or sitting on premises, that VPC now runs in that outpost as well. So in this case, we uh, create an outpost subnet. Now, when we think about subnets in the region, a subnet is tied to an availability zone. And the subnet is how you deploy EC2 compute in a particular availability zone. So you can see here we've got AZ1 and AZ2. We've got two subnets in the two AZs, well actually, so four subnets total. But the EC2 compute is running in those availability zones via those subnets. It's no different with an outpost. You would create a subnet. The subnet is a outpost construct, and you would then deploy compute inside those subnets on the outpost itself. So we still have the same constructs because we're using an Amazon VPC. We have the same constructs that we had in the region. So things like route tables, security groups, and also network ACLs, because it is just the VPC that you're using in the region, but we've expanded it to on-premises as well. From a network communications perspective, if these two instances Y and Z want to talk to each other, they can. They're in the same VPC. Um, now, you'll remember the local route we had before. So in this case, we've got a VPC CIDR of 10.100 slash 16. We've got a local route for that CIDR, and these two instances, Y and Z, are actually addressed inside that CIDR range, so they can talk to each other. Now, their communication is actually going to stay inside the outpost. But, because we're all part of the same VPC here, we can communicate with things inside the region as well via that local route. Now, if we look at the route table, we've got our 10.100 slash 16 via local that's giving us that intra-VPC capability or, or connectivity. But then we have things like IGWs, the internet, other services in the region, S3 and Dynamo and, and all of those other awesome services. And in this case, we can then set a default route via the IGW so that the instance in the outpost can communicate across the connectivity between the outpost and the AWS region and go out via an IGW to public services and the public internet. We can also connect to things like a VPC endpoint, Transit Gateway, VPC Peering, VGWs, so Direct Connect and VPN, all of those constructs that sit in the region are reachable as well. Now, when we think about something like a Transit Gateway, Transit Gateway sits in the region. It belongs in the region with all its fleet of things that enable the large scale that Transit Gateway is. So 
When we've got an instance Y, for example, communicating with something over a transit gateway, the communications will always go back to the region over the transit gateway and then maybe to another VPC or somewhere else. So in this case, we also build out our route table on the outpost and we have connectivity to all of these other things as well. Now one of the main use cases for outposts is low latency to on-premises workloads. So in this case, we've got some workloads here in the top right-hand corner. We also want to have local access as well, so we invented a new type of gateway. This type of gateway, like we didn't have enough already, but uh, this, this type of gateway is a local gateway or an LGW. Now, the way I think about an LGW is it's very similar to an IGW, but it actually sits inside the outpost. So when you get an outpost, you get an LGW as part of that outpost, and the LGW will attach to the VPCs in that outpost, and what that will do is give you access to your on-premises stuff. So you don't have to go back to the region and then back over a direct connect. In this case, we can use a, what we call a customer-owned IP on the LGW to allow connectivity into the local network. Now, we spoke about it previously quickly. It was, with an IGW, you have an elastic IP that's Amazon-owned, or maybe your own-owned if you use a, a BYOP. On the local gateway side, you would assign an IP range to us, normally a slash 26 or larger, and we'll allocate that to the local gateway in the form of a pool. You can then allocate elastic IPs at the local gateway to your instances in the outpost. So that's gonna give you connectivity locally, straight out the um, outpost networking devices that, are, that exist in the outpost that connect to your local LAN and through to your other on-premises workloads. Now, that's not to say you couldn't then send traffic anywhere else as well. Now I'll talk about this thing in just a second, but once you're on the local network, you could go over to a direct connect back to the region, you could go somewhere else to another data center, you could communicate locally between two outposts via the local gateway as well. So it's really that local access for the outpost. And this, this one's finished building out, if anyone was interested in taking a quick snap, and then we'll move on to the next one, the WAN connectivity piece. Alrighty, so WAN connectivity. So we've got our AWS region and we need to connect from the region through to the outpost. We've got our VPC that sits in the region, we've deployed an outpost. We've got some EC2 on that outpost. We've got our outpost networking devices at the top of the rack. Um, they're similar to a top of rack um, switch, but they're actually, they do dynamic routing and a whole bunch of other things. So we call them an outpost networking device. That then connects through to your local network or anywhere else as well, including back to AWS. But then we also have another VLAN uh, called the Service Link VLAN. And so you'll allocate some IPs for that, but that will need to reach back to the region in the underlay piece or the underlay connectivity. So what customers would generally have is something similar to this where you'd have a customer edge router, maybe a WAN connection like we did before with Direct Connect. We've got our customer POP, our AWS cage. We've got our cross connect and then we've got a public virtual interface, and that gives us access to what we call the outpost service. Now, the other text you see here, the, the service link seated public range uh, needs some natting. That's because we're using a public virtual interface. So in, at some place, you'd have to nat that outpost range to a public range. Now, what will happen is when we provision an outpost, we plug it into the network, we will then initiate communications from the outpost back to the AWS outpost service here that sits within the region. Now, that's fronted with some Amazon public IPs. You could also use the public internet if you wanted to and you didn't want to have a public virtual interface. But once we have connectivity, we build what's called the service link back to the outpost service. Now what that does is two things. It gives us access to the AWS control plane so we can manage the outpost. It's a fully managed service after all. And it also gives us access to the VPC data plane which is a, allows us to have those instances appear like they sit inside that VPC inside the region. So whenever we have traffic going from an EC2 instance in an outpost, it will go over the service link to another EC2 instance in the region for example. Now this one's finished building out as well. So this is how outpost networking works. So a whole bunch of other things to think about as well. Now that said, um, I've got about 40 seconds left, so good timing I think. 
that was the last piece I have for you folks. A whole bunch of stuff's happened this year. Um, a couple of related breakouts. If the breakouts here that you see have already been listed, jump online on, on YouTube and check them out because they'll be up there in a couple of days. Another one I didn't add to the list I think was Net214 for hybrid connectivity as well. Um, one last thing as well. I did originally have a whole bunch of links inside this presentation, but people got a little bit too um, camera happy the last time I did it on Monday. So what I've done is I've just added them on the end here. I'll just go over these really quickly here if you wanted to grab a snap. If not, and you don't get them, you can jump on YouTube and just fast forward to the end and, and grab the links from there. And I might even paste them in the comments as well. So these are all of the new services and features that we talked about in this presentation. And the last thing I will say is thank you for coming along here. Don't forget to fill out your feedback. Um, you guys did amazing last year, and I think the session was pretty awesome too. So you rated me pretty highly. Um, and because of that, they let me come back this year. So hopefully they'll let me come back next year as well. So don't be shy in those comments. Thank you.